We're going to continue this uh, series on Jesus' early months of ministry in Capernaum. And uh, we want to talk about several things, but especially tonight we're going to be talking about the subject of fasting. And uh, it's an interesting subject and something that comes up frequently both in the Christian life and in the New Testament. So it's good for us to kind of uh, find our way on that subject. And that comes up in uh, today's lesson. You'll notice that um, we have that opening paragraph again to describe where we are in our life of Christ. Remember, we suspect that Jesus probably came public in about February or March. He had his first Passover, that March-April time frame where all Passovers would fall. Uh, By that time, he had some disciples, had already been to the wedding at Cana of Galilee with his disciples. So we have disciples, we have the first Passover, we have the interview with Nicodemus on the way back toward Capernaum up north in uh, the Sea of Galilee region. He stops off in Samaria and talks with the woman at the well. It's about harvest time, so about May. And then we go on up to Nazareth where he is rejected by his own hometown synagogue attenders. They would have thrown him from the brow of the hill, but he passed miraculously through their midst. And then we have him setting up shop officially in Capernaum. And in the early months in Capernaum, here we are. So this is, you know, perhaps the summer, maybe we're getting a little further than that, but still in his first year of ministry. And it's time for us to talk about the calling of Matthew for discipleship. And so you see, I've provided the text for you there, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. He's a tax collector. He says unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick but go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the Luke 5.29, uh, parallel text to this, we have Levi, same as Matthew. Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. This is a very interesting text uh, for a couple of reasons. Look at the first bulleted point there. Uh, We're trying to remind ourselves here that though Jesus was the friend and the the, um, associate at dinner with publicans and sinners, he is really the friend of repentant tax collectors and sinners or um, seeking tax collectors and sinners. Here he eats with Matthew the tax collector who is now Jesus' devoted disciple and, presumably, with other people who care enough about the changes in Matthew's life to attend a great feast in commemoration of Matthew's new career with Jesus. It would be naive in the extreme to imagine that Jesus preferred to associate with those who lived in continued defiance against his teaching. So oftentimes people say, you see, Jesus preferred to be with the, with the dishonest people Uh, with the publicans and the sinners, the tax collectors who were notoriously dishonest. He preferred to be with them over the righteous people. And that is not correct. Matthew here is a tax collector, but he's repentant. 
um, he is no longer content to be dishonest, uh, to be greedy. He's not going to do that anymore. So it would, and since Matthew is the one who gave the dinner in his own house, we can only imagine that the people who came were people who were interested in Matthew and what he was doing and accepted his invitation because they had some personal interest in Matthew's life and presumably in Matthew's life now as a follower of Jesus. So it is so naive and perhaps even dishonest for us to continually say, well, Jesus preferred to be in the company of drunkards and and tax collectors, publicans, over the company of righteous people. That's just not true. Um, The people who are in direct rebellion against his father were not his favorite people to be with. Jesus was the friend of repentant harlots and publicans and sinners. And if they weren't repentant, he didn't spend a lot of time with them. I mean, he would preach to anybody, but he didn't spend a lot of time with those who were uh, in confirmed rebellion against him. Uh, that, that was the case with the Pharisees. They were rebels, and Jesus had harsh words for the rebels. Here we can see that uh, he is with Matthew, but Matthew is a repentant and seeking former tax collector. So I think it's awfully important that you notice that when somebody says, well, Jesus would rather be with the publicans and sinners, so I'm going to go to the bar and hang out with those people rather than the Christians. That's very naive. These are repentant people like Matthew, not people confirmed in their rebellion against Jesus' father. And so that's an important point to notice. Now, the second bullet there, uh, I deserve, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy. And, of course, where repentance exists, there's no limit to the mercy that we should extend to others. And that's why Jesus tells his detractors that, um, you know, this is a time for mercy, not a time for throwing people away. So it is important, I think, for you to realize that Matthew is repentant. Presumably his associates at this feast, at his own house, are like-minded or at least interested in the changes in Matthew's life or they wouldn't have come. And that's the kind of context where Jesus is eating with the bad guys. Um, Bad guys we all are, but Matthew was a repentant bad guy. And you have to be able to make that, uh, you have to distinguish between the repentant and the unrepentant. And, And that makes sense. So does that raise any questions or observations? Okay, let's keep going. Then we come to this teaching about fasting from Luke 5.33. They said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often to make prayers and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And he said unto them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And uh, we're going to save the part there in fine print for a few minutes from now. But we're introducing the idea of fasting here. And you'll notice that Jesus told his critics that the disciples should not fast while he was still with them, since this was a time of celebration. He also taught that another time would be appropriate for fasting. And we're going to talk about that in some detail. But for now, notice that fasting is not, according to Jesus, fasting is not at all times appropriate. And so he never expected his disciples to be fasting as uh, the Pharisees expected of them at this time. 
So we'll say more about that in just a minute. Just table that for a moment and go down to the next part of the same passage. In Luke 5.33, we also have, uh, you see the fine print there, skip that and go down to the bolder print. He also spoke a parable unto them. No man puts a piece of new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new makes a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agrees not with the old. And no man puts new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also having drunk old wine uh, straightway immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. All right, so we have a couple of things going on here that are helpful on the subject of uh, progressive revelation. You have to know that Jesus is teaching the idea of revelation progressing over a period of time. Uh, That is, you wouldn't expect people from the time of Moses to know as much about the plan of God as you do. Um, people from the time of Moses knew something about Calvary, but they don't know about Calvary what you know. And that's okay because as the Bible history unfolds little by little, the people understood more and more things. When Daniel told us, you know, the great prophecy of the 70 weeks, that was groundbreaking. And you wouldn't expect Moses and Moses' people to know what Daniel knew, that was groundbreaking, and that was, you know, 800 years later. So that's progressive revelation. And Jesus here is talking about that as old because he is essentially saying that he is teaching some new things. Uh, he is helping them understand that um, in the case of wine, uh, it wouldn't do for you to put brand new wine in old bottles, because the chemistry that takes place there, bottles being leather bottles in those days, uh, the chemical process is just going to explode those things right out uh, with the natural carbonation of fermentation. So you can't expect, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to teach you some things that aren't going to fit into your old bottles very well. And you have to be braced for that. And so it's not that the um, old has no purpose, but that there is going to be something new. And, of course, the patch on the clothes is the same idea. So the bulleted points, Jesus warned his detractors that his teachings simply would not fit into their current religious forms, either their man-made traditions or the legitimate legalism of Moses' law. So some of the man-made traditions Jesus did uh, address And he told them, you make the word of God of none effect by your traditions. So your traditions are actually contradicting the word of God. So sometimes he addresses. But even if we're talking about other things, uh, the animal sacrifices for sin, a mediatorial priesthood, the Jewish people's virtual monopoly on God's favor, etc. He's preparing us for things that are new. And he's saying you're going to have to brace for that. Not everything is going to fit into your old way of thinking. And the hollow bullet there, as a new patch would pull right through a threadbare garment, as old wineskins would burst under the pressure from fermenting of new wine, so the Jewish forms of religion would never be able to accommodate Jesus' teaching um, and the new covenant he was about to establish. So something about progressive revelation there. Does that raise any questions or observations? 
All right, so turn that page over and let's talk some more about fasting. Uh, it's a big subject and I thought rather than just passing over it, we should go ahead and uh, delve into it a little bit better. And uh, there is, in some ways, a good bit of mention of fasting in the Bible, but on the other hand, not as much as you might think. And um, we sometimes would suggest, particularly when we come to the New Testament, that if it is emphasized in the New Testament, it probably should be emphasized in our lives. If it is not emphasized in the New Testament, it probably should not be emphasized in our lives. And in the New Testament particularly, fasting is not really emphasized. So that might mean that we shouldn't place an overemphasis on it in our faith and practice as well. So more on the subject of fasting. If you look at that uh, top subheading, Fasting was apparently, but we only say apparently, fasting was apparently commanded for Old Testament saints on the Day of Atonement under the law. And in the bulleted points there, the term fast never actually occurs in the Pentateuch, but Ezra, uh, under that topic, but Ezra used the term afflict in connection with fasting. So... um, And we'll look at the other bullet points and then I'll show you the references. Jews have always understood this afflict your souls phrase to be a command for fasting on the Day of Atonement. This is the only fast that was commanded by the law. So sometimes you think, wow, fasting must be very, very important because it was commanded. Yes, apparently, but only apparently. It was commanded, but the term fast did not occur where it was commanded, it was afflict your souls. And now we have to decide, what does that mean, to afflict your soul? In the hollow bulleted point there, other annual fasts came to be properly observed, but never commanded of God. In commemoration of Jerusalem's siege by Nebuchadnezzar in the 10th month, its fall in the 4th month, the destruction of the temple in the 5th month, and the murder of Gadaliah and his associates in the 7th month. Zechariah mentions all of these as fasts. But the Lord never commanded those. Those are holidays that the Jewish people, by tradition, chose to observe. But God never told them they had to. That was their choice. All right, so the text, when we're talking about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. There should be a statute forever unto you. That in the seventh month, tenth day of the month, which is the Day of Atonement, you shall afflict your souls. Does that mean fast? We think so. Afflict your souls and do no work at all whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you and you shall afflict your souls. Fast? Mm, Apparently, maybe, we think so. Afflict your souls by statute forever. Now in Ezra, we start to connect the dots. Ezra 8.21 Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones, for all our substance. So there it is. Ezra says we were going to have a fast so we could afflict ourselves. And that's why we think when the Lord says you're supposed to afflict your souls, he meant fast. But we could be wrong about that. Uh, The reference in Ezra is very, very helpful, but it is not airtight. Um, if you look at the next bulleted point, Isaiah uses the term afflict the soul for fasting as well. So same idea, Isaiah 58.3. Uh, why have we fasted? 
say they, and you see it not. Why have we afflicted our soul? And you take no knowledge. Is it such a fast, the Lord asked, that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Like, okay, so fasting and afflicting the soul are once again uh, intertwined. So, okay, maybe, maybe afflict the soul means fast. It's not absolutely bulletproof, airtight, but we think that probably is the best interpretation. But notice that we are only talking about one day a year, the Day of Atonement, as a day when fasting is commanded of anybody in the Bible. So there it is. Um, does that raise any questions or observations? Are you tracking with that? So it's not really commanded except for one day a year, evidently. Andy, fasting for Lent is fine, and not fasting for Lent is fine. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a matter of preference and, you know, what you hope to do. There's one thing that should be factored in. The term afflict your soul has some evident implications about asceticism, associated with asceticism. So asceticism, uh, these are the monks. We would normally think of monks, ascetics, who would be in the wilderness, say, depriving themselves, particularly, again, in the Middle Ages and This deprivation could go in all kinds of directions. They might intentionally wear a very uncomfortable robe. They'd be very scratchy and irritate the skin. They might say they would never sleep on anything but stones. Uh, There were the famous tower sitters, people who would erect a pillar with a platform on top and sit on that platform for years roping up their food, roping down the bad stuff for years. You have individuals who would never smile, never laugh. They were committed to afflicting their souls. Uh, You had individuals who would never speak, you know, vows of silence. I'll never speak to anybody. And and everything in between. Um, Individuals who would intentionally... Uh, impale themselves, cast themselves into sticker bushes, all of this, because they were afflicting their souls. And the theology behind that asceticism was that you're going to have to pay for your own sins. You're going to have to uh, suffer. In in most cases, they would believe in purgatory. So when you die, you're going to have to be burned for a while to punish you for all your sins. And, And this asceticism would just help you afflict your souls before you died. So if we were to say, you know, you, you fellows shouldn't really be afflicting your souls. They could go to these Bible verses and say, but I have Bible verses that commend the afflicting of my soul. And in the New Testament age of grace, suffice to say that there is no talk whatsoever about a person punishing himself in any way. And you could you could make the case that afflicting your soul has nothing to do with self-punishment, not in the Old Testament, not ever. But you should see that in the traditions of unusual Christians, it has always been self-punishment. And there is no place for that in a Bible-believing Christian life.
So just beware, that term, afflicting your soul, uh, has been used for asceticism, self-punishment, and there is no self-punishment in the New Testament, and, and there's really not in the Old Testament either. So, good. Oh, and I say that because Andy talks about Lent. Well, you know, this messy doctrine of giving up something for Lent, you know, afflicting your soul, and then it gets, you know, ridiculous because before you give up something, maybe we should also have Mardi Gras where we party till we drop, and then we'll start to give up something and get ready for Holy Week. Well, the entire thing is a total, you know, spiritual catastrophe. And so one thing leaning on another, it's just a disaster. Uh, but there is nothing wrong with fasting at any time, Lent or whatever time of year. It's just going to have to be something that you have your head screwed on straight about uh, or you'll end up in some kind of an unusual doctrine. So, good. All right, so if you go down about three inches, you see what it says. Old Testament saints sometimes fasted because they or their loved ones were at fork in the road times of their lives and they were seeking the Lord's help. So they're not fasting because the Lord commanded them to. They're fasting because they're seeking the Lord's help. So Psalm 35, 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned into my own bosom. So the psalmist said, when they were sick, I was so upset I was fasting for them. Uh, I was I was appealing to God for mercy in their behalf. So he was fasting because there was urgency in something, uh, in this case, um, somebody's health. Ezra 8.21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So he needs help. Um, it's the, the return of the Jewish people and there are enemies round about and there's, there's great pressure and danger. Esther 4.15, Esther bade them uh, return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and uh, fast for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night and day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise. And so I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So it was really life and death. And so they were fasting. There was, there was urgency. Daniel 9.2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And I set my face on the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So once again, he's in an urgent situation and so Daniel is fasting. And that's perfectly appropriate. So sometimes the Old Testament saints fasted because there was some sort of urgency. The next subheading, Old Testament saints sometimes fasted because they were repenting. So in 1 Samuel 7, 6, they gathered together to Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. So there's repentance and they're fasting because they're repenting of sin. And so that gives you a pretty good feel for what fasting was in the Old Testament. And that moves us to the New Testament. You have four New Testament references favorable to fasting. That's not very many, by the way, is it? Four New Testament passages that are favorable to fasting that all Christians everywhere agree upon. 
So here they are. Matthew 6, 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance and more. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. And everybody sees that the same. Everybody agrees. Jesus said, when you fast, do it this way. If he said, if you fast, it would have seemed, seemed a little bit more optional. But since he said, when you fast, this is how you do it. We realize that there's sort of a norm and expectation there. In Matthew 9, 14. Same, by the way, in the parallel text in Mark and Luke. We have. Then came to him the disciples of John saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples fast not? And Jesus said, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken and then they shall fast. So that's where we started a few minutes ago in our text uh, at the other side, on the other side of this page. So what we see here, you see in bold underlined font, when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, then they shall fast. So once again, nobody has uh, any debate on this verse. It's like, yep, that's what it says. That's what it means. Someday they'll fast. So it is. Acts 13.2. Again, this is beyond dispute. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work went I have chosen them. And when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So we have fasting again and nobody doubts that this is what happened. When the first missionaries ever, the apostolic missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, were sent out, it was in the context of the church fasting. And so it is. It's just uh, simple and easy to understand. Acts 14.23. When they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So this is the uh, ordination of the first elders in the first churches that were planted. And you see that they are ordained in the context of fasting. So there they are, four New Testament references. That's not very many. Four New Testament references that everybody agrees on. That, yep, that would make fasting in New Testament times a thing. You know, it happened. And so there it is. And nobody doubts that. Now, there are three in the next subheading, three disputed New Testament references about fasting. That is, these are not uh, agreed upon by every or even perhaps most Bible students. So the first one we have here is the fasting of Cornelius. In the King James Version and New King James Version only, you're going to have Acts 10.30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. The New Versions will tend to eliminate the word fasting. He'll say, I was praying only, not fasting and praying. And so for those of us who love the Reformation texts, we have fasting mentioned in Acts 10. For those who prefer the newer versions, uh, it's not there. Uh, they would say that's spurious. It's not there and it doesn't belong there. So the second one is similar. Paul's reference to fasting is disputed in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. This is on the subject of marriage and how married partners uh, should behave toward one another. So verse 5 says, Defraud ye not the one the other, except to be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Well, the term fasting is not going to be found in almost any of the new versions. 
the Reformation text will have it. It's been deleted. Uh, so in the newer versions, it would just say that you may give yourselves to prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not. So that is considered spurious by many people. And uh, so that's how it is. The most important text on fasting is also disputed because if it's legitimate, then it's really, really important. If it's not legitimate, then obviously it's not important. So in Mark 9:29, when uh, Jesus is talking about the demon-possessed son uh, whose father brought the son to the disciples for healing and the disciples could not affect healing on this boy. Uh, he's probably a young man, not a boy. But anyway, in Mark 9, 29, Jesus said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Um, the Matthew text is parallel and the same account. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Well, most new versions are going to eliminate the word fasting. So this is done by prayer, not prayer and fasting. So you have four New Testament references in the New Testament that are basically beyond dispute. You have three other New Testament references that may be important, but uh, when you're talking to people who don't believe that they exist in the Bible or that they're spurious, then obviously uh, there is no great importance attached to those three. So if you look at the summary at the bottom of that page, there are no legalistic expectations that we must fast. Only passing references to fasting are made at all. And almost none of even these few are found in Bible texts outside the King James Version family of texts and translations. Since fasting is not emphasized in the New Testament, it should probably not be emphasized in our lives. Why emphasize what the Bible does not emphasize? Still, designating certain meals to skip or certain days of meals to skip should probably be a part of a devoted Christian's life at some point. Perhaps certain victories in life can only be won through fasting, as in the Mark 9 text. The person who fasts feels his own frailty. And this humility is good. And fasting may indicate your priorities, things more important to you than food, praying over a fork in the road issue, um, being in the scripture for that time, helping someone in need, etc. Of course, those who fast are not to call attention to themselves to be recognized for piety. That's what Jesus was teaching. And fasting must never become asceticism as if it could somehow pay for one's sins or prove one's Christian devotion. So that's kind of the summary for this. Um, does that raise any questions or observations? What do you think of that, John? Yeah, so John is saying, you know, what text do you have that would be in favor of fasting, uh, fasting in those three disputed passages? So basically, here's how this goes. There's a spectrum, but essentially there are two schools of thought. One school of thought says that we should trust the majority of Greek manuscripts that not only are the majority by a lot, not like 51%, like 95%. So we take the 95% of ancient Greek manuscripts that also happen to come from the Bible lands. So in other words, 
when Paul was planting churches, uh, he was essentially planting churches in what we call Turkey today. And um, these manuscripts are from that area of the world, the Bible lands where Paul was traveling, where the first churches were planted. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought says we should take the 5%, not the 95%, because some of the representatives of this family are very, very ancient. And the idea is if you're playing the telephone operator game, you know, you whisper a secret to the person next to you and they whisper it to the one next and around you go. And when you get back, you have a different story. So the idea in Bible versions and, and particularly in Greek manuscripts is you find the oldest one because as they were whispering, they wouldn't have messed it up so much. The problem with that is we don't have nearly as many of those manuscripts, obviously 5% compared to 95%. And the 5% don't come from Bible lands. They come from Egypt, uh, northern Egypt, uh, northern Africa, Egypt, and uh, particularly Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria was famous for all kinds of heresies. So do you take the 5% from this unusual kind of Christianity in North Africa, or do you take the 95% That's a little more recent, but from the Bible lands where the first churches were planted. And in the Reformation, they really didn't even have access, for the most part, to the Greek manuscripts that were from northern Africa because they, some of them had, the most important ones were not even in existence yet. We had not discovered them and had not placed them in our museums. So there was really no question they were using the majority of ancient manuscripts they had on hand And that's why you have, in the Reformation era, um, general agreement with the things that we'll find in the King James Version in English. So anyway, you have to decide what you're going to do with that. And you all know that uh, my personal feeling is that um, the Reformation was extraordinary. After the Reformation, you have the great revivals um, of the Western world. Uh, including the revivals of, you know, Whitfield and Wesley, and after that, Moody, and uh, coming forward, uh, even in the World War II era, the King James Version and similar Reformation texts were the only game in town, and they totally changed the world for the better. I find it hard to believe that that's an accident of history. So... I recommend that you take that, um, if we'll call it that now, that accident of history to be providence and say God must have had something special in mind for the Reformation and the changing of the Western world, which in turn changed the rest of the world, civilized the rest of the world in, in so many wonderful ways. And I don't think that that's an accident. So I recommend that you prefer the 95% of the manuscripts from the Bible lands with the history of Reformation and Awakening and even the wonderful changes that took place in our own country, I recommend that you take that as God indicating what are his favorite manuscripts, what are his version preferences. I'm sorry. Oh, so 
If you're in Germany, it would probably be Luther's version, which is quite similar to the King James Version. If you're here in the U.S., the King James Version, which of course is similar to the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible and all of that. Uh, More recently, you have the New King James Version, which I like very much because it tended to stay uh, in that whole majority manuscript historical tradition. So I like the King James Version. I like the New King James Version. And if it comes to choices, here's, here's what I say. And, and this is really not an exaggeration. You know, I typically uh, will look at a verse in my Bible software and it goes, you know, King James Version, English Standard Version, NIV, NAS. I don't know what all is there. Something in Greek or Hebrew, depending on um, what verse I'm looking at. And so I, can, I think I can honestly say I use them all. I tend to believe one. Sure, I use them all. I, I, I mean, I'm sure I don't use them all. There are too many to use. I'm not saying you have to have a negative attitude. For the most part, if you obey any of them, you're going to do really well in life. Please just obey one of them, will you? But when it comes to things like this, I think fasting belongs. So that's where I land on it. So, and I don't mind if you have a different opinion. That's fine. So, For your own life, you know... When you're fasting, a lot of times you feel kind of punky. You don't feel very strong. And that's good. That reminds you uh, that we are but dust. We're not strong. We're not mighty. So there, there are some advantages to the humility, the sense of frailty that fasting can bring to your life. And in, in special times, in times of urgency, and in... Uh, times of crisis that makes a lot of sense to fast and even when you're not in crisis you know just think about this as i'm going through this next week you might think you know i could take my typical lunch break or i could get on the phone and call somebody who needs to be encouraged don't let food so dominate your life like is there anything you can think of that's more important to you than food and sometimes you know you don't have to fast a whole day just skip a meal because something is more important to you than eating at noon or whatever time we're talking about. So there's more than one way to do this. You don't have to fast 40 days. Every once in a while, someone will talk about that, and and that's okay. That's not necessary. You know, in Scripture, the one fast that was demanded was a single day, the Day of Atonement. So a 40-day fast, I mean, it exists. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, 40 days but they probably had supernatural help, particularly if it was 40 days without food and water. You're dealing with the miraculous if you go 40 days without water. I understand we can go 60 or even 80 days without food, but water, you can't go 40 days without water unless you have some supernatural help. So, you know, the idea is not necessarily these long, grueling fasts, And never is the idea that you have to be punished. You know, you have to punish yourself for something that you've done wrong. That's just not the point. Uh, But the point oftentimes is priority. There's a lot in my life that's more important than food, and I can miss a meal because I'm going to go help this lady down the street. I'm going to miss a meal because, you know, I've just, I've been thinking about getting ahead in my Bible reading a little bit. Miss a meal. It's good for you. And I think that's, That's why it's not emphasized in the New Testament, but it exists in the New Testament. 
And so since it exists in the New Testament, maybe it should exist in your life too somehow. Does that raise any other questions or observations, Tom? Well, in all fairness, I only ran into one pastor. He was in the city of Hampton and he's retired. He probably is not even living anymore. So in my whole life, I've only run into one pastor who said, you know, fasting is not appropriate for the church. And he would say, you're never going to find it in the church epistles because, you know, he didn't use these three that I just mentioned. He said, you find them in Jesus, in Jesus' teachings, but uh, those are not church-age teachings. So fasting is mm, unnecessary and you shouldn't, you shouldn't think about it. So that's a pretty unusual fellow who had you know, strong opinions. I think what happens more is that it's just never really considered. So, for example, again, my own experience when I was a kid, my neighbor and my, my good buddy went to Jack Hiles Church. And if you don't know about Jack Hiles Church, you know it's really, really hardcore, militant Baptist church. And he, he was hardcore about everything. And then he got on this um, topic one time, and he ended up writing a book on fasting. And so my friend, my best buddy, next-door neighbor, he said, well, you know, Brother Hiles was talking about the importance of fasting. And I'm, say, maybe I'm 10 or 11 years old, and I go to Village Bible Church, And I'd never really even heard of anybody fasting. I remember thinking, how odd that a brother Hiles is talking about the absolute importance of fasting in the Christian life. And I don't even know anybody who's ever fasted. So I'm saying that, Tom, because I think the problem is not so much that somebody is theologically saying don't ever fast. I think it's just in certain circles, never seriously considered and maybe that's the bigger problem than you know a a disciplined theological argument about fasting why would anybody say we shouldn't fast probably most don't come right out and say we shouldn't ever fast it's just they never seriously consider it and i think that's the bigger problem nancy yeah i think definitely you can be prompted to fast at particular times in your life and and also i would like to take some of the mysticism out of it. Again, I mention it periodically just because I don't know why it comes up, but periodically I mention there's my routine not to have lunch. I do have lunch. I had lunch today. If I have people, I get together with people for lunch, and so that's fine. You know, it's no big deal. But, you know, it's not that mystical. It's just like I really don't have time for lunch. I mean, I, I don't prefer that. Out of all the things I can be doing during my lunch hour, the last thing I feel like I should be doing, I don't, I don't care to take more time to eat. The last thing I need is more food in my life. So, but I need to do a lot of other things. And so what might have been a lunch hour might be a study hour. I might be visiting somebody. I might be driving to visit somebody. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to be. I might be, you know, repairing. I might be doing yard work at home that I got you know, behind on. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. But it's just that in general, I'd rather use this time to do something more important for the Lord's work than what I'm doing. 
And so, you know, how do you redeem the time? How do you buy back the time? I need more time to do what I really care about in life. So how do you get that time? Like, oh, I know. I could skip a meal and then I'd have more time. So it's not like I'm in crisis all the time. It's just my routine. And by the way, maybe you have a medical problem and you shouldn't do that. And that's fine. Uh, I guess they tell me now that if I was really smart, I'd eat five meals a day. I, I just don't see myself doing that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm doing other things that I think are more important. And uh, so that's just one way. But it doesn't have to be like, ooh, I'm in crisis. And the Lord is uh, directly prompting me to take this meal time and set it aside and do fasting instead. It doesn't have to be like that. It's just, what did you want to accomplish in your life? What's more important to you than food at this particular day or this particular meal? Just carry on. Uh, Robert, I could imagine that. Uh, and, and by the way, I don't know how you feel about a lot of things in life. For example, when Evie died, I didn't feel that much like eating. You know, when you're in a crisis, nobody has to twist your arm to skip a meal. Like, I don't want to eat, thanks. Yeah, I don't want to. You know, sometimes when you're in crisis, fasting is almost natural. You don't feel like eating. You don't feel good. So it's not that hard. 